0: This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Peregrine is a Latter-day Saints streamer and musician who joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 2019. Peregrine converted to the church from a deeply atheistic background. So, welcome to the Still Rowing podcast. I am your host, Tara McCausland, and welcome, Peregrine. So glad Hello. you're here.
1: Hello. Thank you for having me. It's and good to be
0: here. something I didn't mention in that very brief bio <laughs> was that Peregrine is actually from Australia. So, we're all just going to enjoy your wonderful Australian <laughs> accent through <for> this <laughs> interview.
1: <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, so um, that is a, that was a short bio. Is there anything else you'd like to to add about? Yes, yeah, so, uh, hobbies. Look,
1: I I, I stream. Um, I stream every week except this week because I'm doing this show, so <laughs> this is my quota. But I stream every week. Um, uh, just once a week, I do a show called the Peregrine Show, where I talk about doctrine and I talk about the church and I talk about current events and um, some very kind of deep topics, and I just express myself um, as I, and my beliefs. I also make the odd YouTube video, although I haven't made very many. Um, I'm also a musician. I'm working on, I have released one song as of now, Uh, and I'm working on an album, uh, that will be coming out later this year, um, or possibly early January. Um, and I'm also, uh, starting at the moment, I'm in the process of starting a, Uh, music label focused on the uh, on latter-day saint art and music that's called uh, mountaintop music so
0: love it those
1: are the those are that's what i do
0: yeah i love it that's so cool i'm a musician as well but i'm i'm not going to be starting a label anytime
1: soon (laughs) no well you have feel free to join mine i'll be able to get (laughs) your distribution anywhere you like oh
0: thanks peregrine
1: no worries
0: As I had mentioned, again, in your bio, you have only been a member of the church since 2019, and yes. you come from a deeply atheistic background. I actually was interested to know like, how many millennials are considering themselves non-affiliated or um, atheists in the mm. U.S., and it, mm. it was about 34% in Correct. the yep. states. Is it higher mm. in... Australia do you know um
1: in australia 50% of the population is uh non-religious/atheistic and 50% of the population is uh christian that was in the 2014 census i think 2014 maybe 2016 census we mm-hmm. had another one uh, last year no earlier this year actually and um the results haven't come out from that one yet so i i can't speak to that but 2014 was pre this whole social upheaval that we see, um, in society. It was, it was pre the whole um, Black Lives Matter movement. It was pre the kind of, um, uh, uh, the more extremist wing of the pride movement and so on and so forth. All of that came out, um, all of that was, became popular around 2015 2016 and so in 2014 that was still an underground movement and so I think a lot of I think it's going to be much more than 50 percent of Mm -hmm. the population in Australia is going to be non-religious because that's 50 percent of the population that's not that's not delineated by age so um and, and I can I can tell you from experience um amongst um zoomers like myself and uh, other uh, gen z um gen x millennials all of them um it's very rare that you meet a christian and it's very rare that you meet uh, almost every single person that you meet who's religious is going to be an immigrant and they're going to be muslim or uh, hindu or uh, buddhist so usually the people you would meet on the street 80 to 90% of them are going to be atheists um, if you run in the circles that I run in, but yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's, that's probably startling to some people who might be listening to this podcast. Um, Mm. But I think across the world, as uh, Jared Halverson said on a previous podcast, he said that we're, we are seeing the rise of the nuns of people who are choosing not to affiliate with organized religion um, Mm. and certainly a rise in atheism Um, Mm. And so you're actually my first true atheist gone LDS. (laughs) Yeah. Turned turned LDS, and so I think you have a a unique perspective that you'll be sharing with us today about really the the gifts of faith Mm. and belief, um, because you've you've seen this both sides quite Mm. starkly, I think
1: going you're right that going from an atheistic background to any religious background is actually quite rare but usually if they're going to pick a religion it's going to be the most popular religion in the area whether it's catholicism or um where i am uh in perth it, it's mostly evangelical um, non-denominational Christian, christianity um but but you're right that it's very rare to see an atheist join Um, a church nowadays it it wasn't back in the day i mean c.s lewis did it um Mm -hmm. he i think he joined the anglican church but there are people i know who have gone from non-religious to lds um not atheistic because i was because i consider atheism and uh just non-religiousness to be two separate things right Mm -hmm. um atheism is a atheism is a stream of philosophical thought that um and i was specifically a new atheist or an anti-theist so i was in the stream, I was in the stream of thinking of like Dawkins and Hitchens and all, and those people. Um, but anyway, the, I, I have friends, um, and I've met missionaries who are converts from a non-religious background where their parents weren't religious. And so, and most of the time in Australia, it goes something like, like parents aren't religious, grandparents aren't religious, great grandparents were Christian. So it's something like that in Australia. It's, it's very commonly, the kids are raised non-religious they don't have any Christian background of any kind. Um, but a few generations back, their family was Catholic or their family was Protestant or more most commonly their family was, um, Anglican or uh, church of England because we are an English colony. And what that means is that, uh, generally the people you meet uh, on the street are going to have no conception of what religion is. I mean, um, I believe that in America, even if if you're talking to someone who's non-religious, they'll at least understand the difference between a Catholic and a Protestant, or they'll understand the difference between a Latter-day Saint. And, um, a mainstream Christian, but or maybe a, if you say
0: Mormon and Christian. Mormon, they'll know what you mean.
1: But <laughs> right. when, when you, when you ask someone, cause they'll at least know the statue, they'll know the, the golden mm-hmm. temples and stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. But if you say, if you say the word Mormon to most Australians, they won't even know, they will n- have never heard that word before. They'll, they won't know what you mean. Um, and most of them only know what a Catholic is because they went to Catholic school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you, you know, they'll ask you questions like, what's the difference between a Catholic and a Christian and things like that? Or what's the difference between a Catholic and a Muslim? Um, because we just aren't, it's just not part of our culture. Religion is very much not part of our culture in Australia. I, I would liken it more to our culture is more similar to somewhere like Canada or the UK mm-hmm. or like uh, uh, Western Europe. Um, than it is America but we're very Americanized in terms of our media but in terms of our kind of cultural discourse and everything it's very similar to Western Europe so
0: right well and I served a mission in England and so I I know of what you speak (laughs) I talked to a lot of Africans and Asians um, about Mm. God and faith uh, and and English people as well but what I discovered was kind of a dislike for religion in general Mm. uh, from the the Brits Bless them. Yes. Yeah. Their their pubs and their football were what they loved.
1: (laughs) Yes. And it's very, you're absolutely right. And in Australia, it's the same way. Australia, we have a, it's actually worse in Australia. Um, Well, I don't know if, I don't know if the drinking's worse. I would say that our drinking culture is worse. Um, We have a culture of drinking. We have a culture of underage drinking. Um, We have a culture of drug use and um, just general, generally, Australia has always been a country that's focused on a uh, kind of social liberalism um, and doing whatever you want and not being judged for what you do. And, um, and so, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, That's so maybe we can like. pivot a little bit here uh, and get a feel for your upbringing. Uh, yes. As well as just what was your life and worldview like before discovering the church and becoming a Latter-day Saint?
1: Mm. So, I was raised in the Baptist church. My parents were kind of non-denominational Christians, um, but they found a Baptist church where they liked the minister um, and they liked the people. And so that's where we went. Um, And so all of my early understandings of Christianity came um, came from the Baptist theology. I didn't understand any aspect of other theology until much, much later. Uh, even as an atheist, I didn't really understand it. But basically, uh, I, I, be- I I believed it when I was a kid. Um, I believed in Christianity completely until I was probably about 11 or 12. And a weird thing happens when you're 11 or 12 where you start to hit puberty and and your hormones go wild. And suddenly it's like, everyone hates me. The world's <laughs> against me. My parents don't know what they're doing. And it's like just you become a teenager just overnight and everything sucks. Right. And that's what I was like. That's what I was like. So I, um, 11 or 12, maybe 13 ish. Um, I, I started to really doubt Christianity. Part of this was because my mom had me read cause she's kind of new agey. She had me read, uh, the only planet of choice. And that has a conception of God, it's, it's a, it's a new agey book. It's, it's, I think it's the one where it's written by some angel or something. Uh, that's what they say. Um, and so it's, it has this conception of God. That's very much like the relationship between humans and the, these kind of like divine ascended beings that is God, like the relationship itself is God. And I, and so I had this conception of God as being very kind of deistic, very much like, um, okay, so God isn't really a person. He's more like a force that, and he's not really a male or a female. he's just a force that operates in the world. And then I started realizing, well, if God's not a person, then I don't really have to do anything to worship this person because he is just a force. And I can just, you know, accept that that's the way it is. And then I was like, well, the difference between that and atheism is basically nothing. Like, so I might as well just live my life as if God doesn't exist. And that's where I took the step from deism to atheism, although I didn't know what it was called at the time. Um, and then when I was about 14 or 15, I discovered Richard Dawkins, Lawrence Krauss, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, and uh, a few notable others as well. And uh, I started calling myself an atheist. And I was like, "Yep, yeah, it's actually okay to be an atheist. Um, I went to a Christian school, which means I felt like I was punk rock. I felt like I was fighting the power. Um, and, <laughs> and I've always loved punk rock music and I've always loved the punk rock culture so it's probably no coincidence that I ended up becoming one of the most hated religions in the world but um, anyway I uh, so I really I really disliked authority and I saw authority as the Christian school I saw it as my Christian upbringing I saw it as my parents and so I fought back against it by becoming an atheist but once again I wholeheartedly believed it um, I would I would watch five, six, seven, probably more like atheist videos a day. And I would rewatch the same ones over and over again. I literally still to this day, I have two playlists or three playlists of atheistic videos. Each one is like over a thousand long. And I've watched all of the videos hundreds of times. <laughs> like I've watched wow. them so many times. And um, so, yeah, that's that's what I was like. I was very... I was into philosophy. I was into thinking about things. I've always been very um, obsessive over certain ideas. And so I just would obsessively think about the fact that God doesn't exist for hours a day. And I would argue with my teachers. I'd argue with my parents. I would argue with my, my preachers at church, um, my pastor and my youth pastor. I got, never got any answers that I was satisfied with except, except I had a very good friend. He was, he's my best friend. He's a very, very good man. Very good young man. Um, who was a member of the church. Only, only member of the church of Jesus Christ I had ever met. And I had never even heard the word Mormon. So I didn't know anything about it. Um, I might've heard it once in like, um, uh, Christopher Hitchens ramblings or something, but I, I, I didn't really know what it was. And um, it was through him that I was introduced to this theology that that I couldn't argue against. It was a theology that was far more uh, beautiful, far more accepting and loving, uh, far more sensical than any of the other Christian churches that I was railing against. And so, I eventually, it took three or four years of me knowing him and talking with him and arguing with him and going back and forth before I started to, uh, I started to have a change of heart, probably disconnected from my relationship with him, but I started to have a, have a change of heart due to a number of uh, realizations I had about the nature of life itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I essentially realized that religion is far more important to a human existence than I was making it out to be. Eventually I just realized that, um, I needed to consider joining a religion, um, not to believe it, but just to live by the rituals and, and things like that, because I started realizing that ritual is very important and, and, and having a kind of, um, meta narrative and a, a kind of, um, transcendent truth that you can follow is actually very important. So I started to realize that and I started to think, okay, uh, what could I possibly look into as to a church I could attend or something like that? Just something I could do every Sunday to renew my values and, and understand whatever. And um, the first thing that came to my mind was the Church of Jesus Christ. Um, and so I started going to church with his family, with my friend's family. Um, and through that, I met some uh, lovely sister missionaries. I started doing the lessons. And, uh, I suppose the rest is, the rest is history. (laughs) Here I am making three hour podcast once a week about, (laughs) about the, the, the deep symbolism of the sacrament. (laughs)
0: And I love it. I love it. And I, by the way, for our listeners, I will post in the show notes, um, an actual like testimony. It's like a 15 minute YouTube testimony that, um, Peregrine posted about a year ago. And it's, it's beautiful. I I Thank so you. enjoyed it, and that was one reason why I, I invited Peregrine to be on the podcast. But I will post that, and you'll want to listen to that.
1: Yeah. So the basics of all that I just shared, um, and I go into more detail about that whole story and that testimony.
0: As I had suggested before, you were telling us more about your background. um, Your your worldview has changed dramatically. Your feeling of self worth has changed dr- dramatically as a result of your becoming a Latter Day Saint, and so. I'm curious if you can speak to that and also what really drew you to the restored gospel, because for someone like you who was pretty well embedded in this atheistic viewpoint, I would think it would take a pretty dramatic shift mentally to be open to the restored gospel. Does that make sense? Okay.
1: Yes, sure. So I can answer those two points. So um, first thing I'll say is the, like, the, all of that journey that I had described was something I lived in. It was, it was very real to me. It was a real emotional journey from start to finish. And I talk about it very analytically because that's how I think, but, <laughs> but really it, it was, it was a great emotional journey and it was very um, draining, very emotionally draining to think about these concepts so much. Um, but I, in terms of what it was like, being an atheist um well i'll say this my life was and this is going to sound like like a, a lot of this stuff um because i still have this 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 part of me that remembers how atheists think about stuff i know that to some atheists everything i say is going to be through this lens of oh he's saying that for this reason and he, or whatever and it's and, and they're, they're thinking through it in a different way um but this is, genuinely, this is genuinely how it felt. It felt dark. That is the best word that I can find to describe what it was like to be an atheist. And I don't mean, to clarify for the atheists who are going to be whatever, I don't mean dark in comparison to where I currently find myself. Although it is, but that's not what I'm talking about. It was dark, irrelevant of where I am now. Um, it felt like there was some, there was a light missing. Like I was, like I was wandering in the shadows, and I had nowhere. Like I had no uh, guidance. I felt lost. I felt members of the church who are familiar um, can liken it to the image of the mists of darkness in Lehi's vision. Mm-hmm. So that's what it felt like. It genuinely felt like I was wandering and I was lost. Um, however. On top of that, so on top of that, I was very, very, very depressed when I was an atheist, Um, almost suicidally depressed. And um, the church, to a great extent, saved me from that. Um, Overnight, it was a complete change. I'm not going to say that's how it works for everyone, because I know some people have actual clinical problems and it's, and it's a problem with their brain chemistry more than it is a problem with their belief system or how they're acting. But for me, it really was due to the belief system. It really was due to how I was acting. So there's a number of things that atheism just simply cannot address, um, simply cannot address because it doesn't even try to address. Um, and these things are a meaning, a meaning for your life. Um, why you're here, um, what's the purpose of doing anything, whether it's getting up, whether it's going to work, whether it's, whether it's buying this new thing or whether it's, um, going to this new place or going to school or getting a degree or any kind of motivation, it just doesn't provide it. You have to be self-motivated or, uh, atheism simply, it simply will not give you anything. Secondly it doesn't try or attempt to give a, an objective ethic. There have been attempts. There have been attempts, um, but I don't like any of them. The one that has come the closest to being logically consistent is Ayn Rand's objectivism. But even that um, isn't actually objective. It's it's more of a subjective moral. That's just going to, I don't know, get you materially wealthy. I suppose you could call it something like that. But anyway uh that's that's not something i really want to explain a whole very deeply but i will say that the that atheism just simply doesn't doesn't provide cannot provide an objective moral ethic
0: do you mind me inserting something yep. oftentimes yep. people will say i don't need religion to be a good person what mm. what would your response be to someone who uses that as their their reasoning for not being affiliated with religion
1: yeah sure so i suppose those are my two points uh and your question is to the second point which is atheism doesn't provide an objective morality they would say well um just because it it doesn't provide an objective morality doesn't mean i can't be a good person because of that well my first response which may be a bit harsh my first response would be what do you mean by a good person um and and this the reason why I ask that is because by Christian standards, Christian standards are no sex outside of marriage. By Latter Day Saint standards, it means no coffee, no alcohol, um, paying tithing to a religious institution, so on and so forth. Christianity has much higher standards for what it means to be a good person than mm-hmm. atheism has. And so when atheists say, "Oh, you can be a good person and be an atheist," I'm like, "You can be hypothetically." But are you, by Christian standards, a good person? And the answer is usually no. And that's not like, I'm not trying to be harsh with that. I'm just saying, like, philosophically, it's, it, they're trying to make an emotional point. They're trying to say, oh, are you judging me because I'm an atheist? Um, and the answer is, I'm not judging you because you're an atheist. I'm judging atheism because of the way atheists act. Um, but anyway, I'll add on to that, that the, the lack of an objective moral is actually a big one. Because when they say a atheist can be a good person without religion, um, then your question is, what does it mean to be a good person? You can ask it from the, from the Christian perspective. You can also ask it from the atheist, the atheist perspective. What does it actually mean to be a good person? And they can't answer it. They can't answer it. They can say, Oh, be nice, love each other, whatever. And you, you can just say, why, hmm. why does that make you a good person and not something else? There is no actual answer to that line of reasoning. You can just keep asking why all the way down, and eventually it crumbles, They and, and eventually it becomes circular. There is no way of, without an objective moral, there is no way of saying anything is moral. And, and I'll, I'll take it, I actually remembered my third point about atheism as well. So you have the first point being that um, there's no objective meaning, meaning you don't have any uh, reason to do anything. The second thing is that there's no objective morality, meaning there's no um, way of judging whether what you're doing is good or bad. And then the third thing is there's no objective truth, which means you can't tell if what you're experiencing is even there at all. Under atheism, it's technically impossible to tell uh, whether what you are experiencing in front of you is real and actually there and part of the universe, or if you are part of an elaborate experiment in some asylum somewhere where they're pumping people full of some psychoactive drugs, hmm. there's actually no way of telling the difference. There's no way of telling that you're not a brain in a vat or a man in a padded room. It simply is impossible to tell. And that's very, very important to me um, because I think, that, I think that truth is actually transcendently important. You cannot govern your life if you do not understand what is true. You cannot act. You cannot interact with others. You cannot do anything or be anything. Practically, it is completely null and void. It is completely null and void to believe that there is no objective truth. And because atheism doesn't believe in objective truth and because, well, and, and I will also clarify because I know a lot of atheists will say, I believe in objective truth. I just believe in science. I believe in what's there. Um, I believe in objective morality. I believe that there is such a thing as right and wrong. I just don't believe it comes from God. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't find it convincing because I haven't, I haven't heard a single reason, a single reason why you would hold those views. You hypothetically can, but I haven't heard a single reason why. And I know for some atheists, that's enough. They're okay, they're okay to just say, there is objective good and bad, there is ob- objective right and wrong, there is objective truth and lie, but that I don't know how to clarify it, justify it, classify it, anything like that.
0: Hmm. Yes, so what you're speaking to, I think is so powerful. Um, because yeah, if there's no clear right or wrong and no objective truth, then how can, how can we know how to behave and how can we know what is good <laughs> and right? Mm. And so- um, If everything's pres-
1: the right thing to do, then nothing is the right thing to do. Right. You, you, it's, right. it's paralyzing.
0: And so President Nelson actually said in his opening remarks from um, October 21 conference, he said, yep. contrary to the doubts of some, there really is such a thing as right and wrong. There really yes. is absolute truth, eternal truth. One of the plagues of our day is that too few people know where to turn for truth. I can assure you that what you will hear today and tomorrow constitutes pure truth. So I just had to throw that Correct. in there because what you're speaking to is people are so confused, as you had described. Mm. It's just a feeling of being lost in darkness yes. when there is no when there's no compass, no truth. To base your life upon. So I'll let you Correct. continue. And yeah. That so,
1: question. um, so that that whole opening speech was a real, it was a great moment for me because it, I realized I I was basically verified. I feel like I was verified all in a moment because I've been saying, I've been saying things like pure truth. I've been mean, saying things like following pure light and, and truth for a while on my stream on the weeks leading up to conference. And so then for him to actually say it, it was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. there we go. Yes, I got it right. Um, but yeah, so to paint a picture for your listeners, if you imagine that your gui- you're guiding your life and your worldview is, um, is seen through this lens, nothing meaning anything, they're not being such a thing as right and wrong, and they're not being such a thing as truth and lie. If you live your life like that, And if you see everything through those lens lenses, everything becomes very, very dark, very quickly. Um, There's no, you have no love for your fellow beings. You have no love for yourself. Um, You have no reason to pursue your dreams or to pursue work or to pursue a family or, or anything. It's, it's a very, very dull and dark place. And when I was, when I was an atheist, I was completely taken by all of those things, taken to a very, very dark place because of them. Um, at times, extremely dark, but but at other times, brighter. Um, but what actually pulled me, began to pull me out, um, and this is to answer uh, your second question, what led me to the restored gospel, um, or led me to want to look into the restored gospel. What really pulled me out was actually... And, and if I'm being honest, it was, it was almost entirely a single thinker. Um, it was a man by the name of Jordan Peterson. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I have come to disagree with him on a few things, on a few things. But when I first discovered Jordan Peterson and started watching his lectures, I really got into... His, other people get into his self-help stuff. I got into his philosophy. I got into his um his archetypal readings of mythology his understandings of ritual and religion um and all of that and i got very very into that that's what i really enjoyed and as an atheist it was complete it it was kind of foreign to me it was a it was a kind of understanding i had lacked for years Um, And the last time I had felt it, I literally was a child. So it's not like I really identified with it at all. But I started to really feel this feeling of, oh, that's why ritual is important. That's why a conception of God is important and a conception of a divine good. Like that's actually really good for humanity. It's actually really good for society. I mean, these things seem self-evident. These things seem self-evident. But when you're in an atheistic malaise, it's very, very hard to see how a God figure can be of any use. But when you start to realize that it's actually very important to guide your life and society, to have a goal to aspire to, um, you actually need a divine good to aspire to. And every culture has had it. Um, every culture's gods have, have been something of a thing to aspire to even in the Greek pantheon and, and things like that, where they had imperfect gods that, that were kind of very human in their realms of what they were gods of, you would become like them in order to be good at that thing, right? You would, mm-hmm. the God of agriculture, you would become like that God in order to be better at agriculture. To have a divine goal like that is actually very, very important for guiding society because without it, Um, you get people acting in any way they see fit and you end up with a very chaotic social fabric. Social fabric is very, very important. um, And... I won't go in depth as to why, but I will say that I, that social fabric is essentially the thing that binds the whole of our society together. Um, when you walk up to someone and shake their hand, that is a part of the social fabric. When you walk up to someone and high five them, right? You hold your hand up, everyone high fives you. That's part of the social fabric. The fact that you don't litter, that is part of the social fabric. Um, these are all socially enforced rules, um, meaning that the uh, and monogamy was one of these until very, very recently. Mm-hmm. Um, monogamy was an enforced social rule until very, very recently. Not legally enforced, but socially enforced. It was enforced by uh, the, the human mannerisms, the human tongue, the human voice. It was, it was purely through discourse. Um, And that's what the social fabric is. It's the thing that binds everyone together. Now you can have a liberal, like a politically liberal society as long as you have a social fabric with a divine goal to aim towards that binds everyone together because then everyone will act um, much, much better. And and I believe that the best social fabric is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which I came to realize because of all of this Jordan Peterson stuff. If you have a social a, a social fabric um like you did in the state of deseret before it became um colonized by the american government um when in the state of deseret when you had this social fabric of everyone's a child of god everyone's progressing to become like god um everyone's everyone's therefore a beautiful spiritual being with in infinite potential and that there is such a thing as right and wrong and that that is clearly delineated in our doctrines in our covenants in our uh, scriptures when you have all of that that social fabric is like this and everyone's working together everyone loves each other there's always going to be a couple outliers but it's going to be a much more prosperous and pleasant society to be in than one where everyone's doing their own thing going their own way there is no social fabric and so that's um that all of that came like a flood of realization to me And so then I was like, okay, so in order to maintain essentially the meaning in my life and to maintain the direction in my life, I need to have some divine figure to aim towards. And I began to believe that that divine figure was best embodied by the Christian symbol of Christ. But I didn't know, um, I didn't know which Christian church to pick at first, but it kind of, immediately made sense. I was like, I'll look into the, I'll look into the Mormons. Why not? Because they have, they had a theology that I thought made a lot more sense than anyone else. So then I started researching and I uh, started going to church and I started um, being taught by the sister missionaries. There were a few things that struck me about the church that made me want to be in this church and none of the other ones. It was God, the father and God, the son, having physical bodies and being physically separate. That was a must for me. That was a must because the other Christian churches, Trinitarianism to me makes absolutely zero sense. I think it makes no sense philosophically. I think it makes no sense historically. And I think the, uh, the council at Nicaea, which was the council that spawned the Trinitarian doctrine, mm-hmm. um, I think it was apostate. So I believe literally no aspect of the church after the Nicene Creed. I think it was completely apostate after that point. And I do not believe that God is the author of confusion. And I, and I believe that his nature makes sense and that we can make sense of it. And I do not for a moment think that, um, he would be a, he would be a paradoxical being. I don't believe for a moment and Trinitarianism requires him to be a paradoxical being. So, um, that was a must for me. God, the father and God, the son being separate was a must. Um, being united in will was also a must because um, that's what it means to have a divine figure to aim towards. Is that they are united with truth. Um, so if God the Father is united with truth, therefore God the Son must also be united with truth, and so they must both be united in will towards a common goal. Um, so then I thought, okay, the the other things that I really needed an actual purpose for this life, which the church also provided because the plan of salvation is a, is a very clear, um, very uh, um, complete view of what it means to be human. And I'll add to that, that the doctrine of eternal progression was also, once I heard it, I was like, there's no way this can be false. The doctrine of eternal progression must be true. The idea that we exist in in order that we might progress is um it's self-evident to me and i think anyone who has this conception of um anyone who has a conception of humans exist and do not progress past this life or or they exist and they just progress in this life and that that's the end i think they i think they've been lied to so long that they can't they can't tell Mm. (laughs) i really believe that the that the doctrine of eternal progression is so, so true. So anyway, that's just a few of the things I won't go on too long, but those are a few of the things that it was just like, I needed. Once I heard them, I went, this actually justifies everything that I have believed up until this point. It makes so much more sense, so much more sense than what I had been believing. And when I add it to my conception of morality and my conception of truth, it brings everything into alignment and so that's what the church was for me um and that's why when i heard it and when i realized it i just went like epiphany holy ghost just went this is true everything came into alignment i went i this this is this is right
0: Mm. and this is kind of a a a side question but i'm curious what role did the book of mormon play through that process as you were learning these truths and, and gaining a testimony of them
1: I feel like I'm going a little bit meat before milk but I'll try and I'll try and constrain myself. <laughs> I get I get very excited, you can tell. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But I'll try I'll try to constrain myself to do uh, more more milk. But the way I would have said it at the time is that I believe that mythological texts come about over thousands of years through evolution of oral storytelling. So that's the first part. Second part is the Book of Mormon is a mythological text. Explain
0: that for our listeners because they're not going to understand what you mean.
1: Okay. So mythological means, um, so, okay. A a mythological text is a text that is archetypal. An archetypal text is a text that um, has been passed down from generation to generation, um, orally, usually orally. um, And every time it's been told, it's changed very slightly. The better ideas for human survival and for human betterment have survived. The worse ideas have been forgotten. So over time, over thousands and thousands of quote unquote generations of a story being told, eventually it contains such fundamental human truths that it becomes its own kind of story. An example of of this would be the story of Genesis. Genesis is a very, very, very old story. And to a lot of archetypal thinkers, it's the pinnacle of what an archetypal story can be. It's um, it's mythological. It's strange. It's abstract. It's kind of it's kind of weird. It, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, um, but in a kind of some some kind of a strange way, it makes every bit of sense. So it's kind of this it's this text that appeals to our very humanity just just by reading it, and and it's so deep because of that. Now, how that text came about, uh, I, I, of course, now believe that, that all archetypal texts are, contain some kind of light of Christ, and that's why they get selected the way that they do. But if we're talking about from an atheistic perspective, an archetypal text or a mythological text um, is that it's, it's a text that evolves over thousands of years um, f- through a civilization's oral storytelling, or sometimes it's written storytelling um and that over time the less important stuff gets dropped and the more important stuff gets kept that's an that's a myth that's a myth that's a mythological Mm. text and that's what all myths are and they're usually religious but not always now i read the book of mormon and it read to me like a mythological text the stories were important they told important moral truths um the less important stuff is mostly dropped not all dropped but mostly dropped um to me, it was an indication of it being an ancient text. It, was, it, it, it read like an ancient text. It came off the page like an ancient text. I have a friend who has studied all religions. He's actually not a member of the church, but he studied all religions in their native language. Um, he, he knows like Arabic and he knows, um, he knows Hebrew and he knows all, all these different texts. And he studied all of these texts in the, in, his, in the native language. And he said the Book of Mormon to him reads as much like an ancient text as the Talmud or the, or the Hadith or any of these other texts that come from these other world religions. That's what I would have said at the time, is that the Book of Mormon reads like an ancient text. Um, it, it is mythological and yet it, it sprang up in the 19th century. That doesn't make any sense, right? Because if you're an atheist and you believe that stories are supposed to evolve over thousands of years, creating a text which reads like an ancient text and is mythological, Um, that springs up out of nowhere either you found an ancient text like a real ancient text and you translated it or you're a genius the likes of which no man has ever been in the history of the world so i decided that the first one was more likely than the latter one so i tried to look into uh, what atheistic explanations people have of joseph smith bringing forth the book of mormon and I never heard an explanation uh, and I still haven't that, and I've, I've debated a few people in my own life and online, but I've never heard an explanation that actually justifies any of the Book of Mormon, any of it through an atheistic lens. And they usually, they always have to rely on such an insane theory that you might as well just believe Joseph Smith's story because it's it makes so much more sense. Um, and so and, and it has more evidence for it as well. Joseph Smith's story has more evidence for it than any of the atheistic explanations. Now that's the milk. That's the milk. That's what I thought at the time. That was the milk. <laughs> that was the milk. In terms of meat, what I would say is that when I read the Book of Mormon, it was aligned with truth and it was an example of that, of that kind of deity that you were supposed to try and become it was an example of that in a world that i was living in where uh the only way you got that was through thousands of years and so i believed that therefore the only place it could have come from is from that light directly Mm -hmm. and so that's why i believed that the book of mormon was revelated that it came directly from god so anyway that's the (laughs) that's the tying together with a big bone of the book of mormon but I will quickly add, yes. I felt the same way about the New Testament. So I mm-hmm. felt the same way about the story of Jesus Christ. I felt that it, again, Jesus Christ's life, just the stories of his life was a myth in and of itself, even though um, they were historical texts and they sprang up in a matter of decades. Right. And yet somehow they, the stories were so profound and they were so mythological that um it converted all these people. The apostles went and died for, for the truth of these stories. And I was like, you don't get stories like that happening like that. They ha- they take thousands of years. And yet here is a story that has sprung up in a matter of decades. Therefore, it must be true. And the divine origin of it must be true as well. And so I that's that was where I got my testimony of Jesus Christ and the early church from as well.
0: Now, I... I might venture that most of my listeners are not uh, even 1% as philosophical as you are. So I think some of this may be <laughs> over their head. <laughs> but well, I'm I, trying to explain it in a way that they yes. will
1: understand, but I, yes. I'm doing my best. <laughs> no, you're, you're you're
0: doing great. But this is, this is a very unique perspective. And one thing that I do appreciate is that we're coming to this from a very logical standpoint. And I think that oftentimes people will say, there's no logic in faith or there's no logic in belief in God and, and your experience and your testimony is just the opposite that through Mm. intellectualism, you actually came to know truth for yourself. And so Mm. I think oftentimes we, we think that, that faith is blind and I don't believe that's true. I think that God, well, and in scripture, it never says only have faith it says to study, study it out in your mind mm. and, and to come to logical conclusions as you have studied about the truths of these things. And certainly we, we will always need faith because there will Correct. be some things, there will be many things that won't have immediate answers. And we're, I'm going to get to this question here in a second, but, but for our deep thinkers, whoever you are that might be listening, I, I want you to hear Peregrine and recognize that as we study these things out in our minds, that the gospel can make a great deal of sense. And that, like you had suggested, understanding the nature of God, um, I think, Mm. I mean, there's a very good reason why that's the first article of faith (laughs) that we need to understand the nature of God, um, first and foremost to believe anything else after the fact. And so understanding the nature of God and, and having a, a deep understanding, of the plan of salvation answers so many of the questions that trouble us. And so I like that you, you brought both of those things up.
1: Correct. Well, I I wanted to say on, on what you just said, um, if we have, and this is for, and this is for the more kind of the people who are very intellectual and they think about these things very deeply. I would say that, first of all, just because you think about something deeply doesn't make you right. Um, Because a lot of people think about things very, very deeply and they're very wrong. Um, an example would be all of the atheistic thinkers of the last 200 years. But I would say that the one, um, one thing I would say from what you just said, which is very, very, very good is that if we have any hyper-specific definition of faith that like excludes certain things and what and, and, and is very like hard line, it's going to be wrong because faith was always defined as a hope in things that are unseen. And, and that is, and according to Joseph Smith's lectures on faith, which I believe very strongly, but um, me and my brother, we, we talk about these things a lot together. I get a lot of my ideas from him. He gets a lot of his ideas from me, and we kind of go back and forth. Um, but, and he's not a member of the church, but he said something about how faith is actually required to do anything. It's, it's, re- it's a required, like, um, and then I would use the example of if you're going to go to university, You are accepting on the words of your parents and perhaps some people in society that this degree that you're, first of all, you don't know if you're going to get the degree. Second of all, you don't know if all that work is going to be worth it or all that money is going to be worth it. You don't know if that degree is going to get you a job. You don't know. And you're doing it all on faith. You're going to get your degree on faith. And there is, and then you can go down a little bit further. Faith is an idea that scales all the way up and all the way down. You can go all the way up to the biggest, grandest things, and all the way down to the smallest things. To wake up in the morning every day to go to university um, is an act of faith. To wake up every morning and go to church is an act of faith. To to um, take the sacrament is an act of faith. To complete your degree and then and you've put in all this work that is an act of faith. Furthermore, it's not just faith in the outcome that you're looking for. It's faith in the universe itself. It's a faith that the outcomes that are going to happen follow from your actions. It's like, people don't understand, I suppose, in this world that it actually takes faith to believe in causation. It takes faith to believe that if I study, I will get good grades. It takes faith to believe that if I punch someone, it's going to hurt them. Right. <laughs> because these are all things, these are all assumptions that we just live with but we all accept them on faith. And so for someone, to, for someone to discount faith because faith is blind or faith is whatever, it's like, no, faith is hope for anything in, unseen for any reason. Therefore, you can have faith in bad things. That's why it's called bad faith, right? You can have faith in bad things or you can have faith in good things, um, but faith is always going to be there. There is no such thing as living without faith. Living without faith is just lying down and dying. That's what living without faith is. Because you, why should I eat? Eating doesn't necessarily give me sustenance. You know, it's like, like I, I don't know for sure that eating gives me sustenance. So, you know, faith is, faith is hope for things that are unseen, but it can be anything from the very small to the very large. And so that's why I try and avoid kind of, like like you just like you just did very very uh eloquently is that um is that faith can be any number of things and when you said the gospel makes it can make sense i think the gospel is the only thing that makes sense i I think that every single idea that isn't the gospel of the church of jesus christ when you get down to the bottom of them are empty or anti-truth um because there's being empty of truth and not being true, and then there's being the opposite of true, and and at the end of the day, when you get down to all of the all of the ideas outside of the church, um, well not just outside of the church, but outside of specifically, um, religious truth, because I think all religions have some truth, but outside of religious truth, every single idea, every philosophy, everything boils down to nothingness when you think about it f- for long enough. So anyway. Hmm. We can move on
0: to the next question now. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I love what a deep thinker you are. You're really, you're uh, speaking to things that I have never thought of. So appreciate how you're opening my mind to new ideas. (laughs) Um, But I, I, I'm curious because one of the things that maybe seasoned members of the church often run up against is new information, new history. That's hard to digest and oftentimes when something is new, especially if it's hard history like polygamy or blacks in the priesthood ban, et cetera, sometimes people they don't know how to deal with this type of information. And I'm just curious because I I know when I listen to another. Uh, interview that you did it was on saints unscripted if you're interested in mm-hmm. listening to that i can post that as well but you had said that you had actually done some deep diving into some of some anti-mormon stuff as you were <laughs> you were um looking into mm-hmm. the church initially how did you wade through that and come out on top still believing in the church
1: well i have a uh, I have a cool this is a cool thing this isn't me but i have a friend Um, he's called redeemed saint on Twitter. Shout out to him. He's a great guy. He's, he's I think 17 years old. He's an absolute legend. He's not baptized, but he wholeheartedly believes in the church. His parents are uh, ex Mormons. They're, they're hardcore apostate, hate the church, everything. Um, His, he stopped going to church when he was very young his parents stopped taking him to church before he was eight. So hence why he's not baptized. His mum, when he was 15 years old, made him read the CES letter, something like, something, I don't know his exact story, but this is from what I remember. His mum made him read the CES letter and it converted him to the church. So, because <laughs> <so, laughs> he was just like, these arguments are so bad. And, and the information in it is so like, is so absurd that the church must be true. Um, but I mean, I do feel that way now I've looked into a bit of anti-Mormon arguments, but they never stand up. They never stand up to anything. Um, anti-church arguments are very, um, they're universally emotionally driven. They almost always stem from an, from a lack of understanding of the gospel and its doctrine. When it comes to something like, um, Blacks in the priesthood, for example. You can hypothetically think of reasons that God would have done it, that God would have restricted the priesthood um, from like not giving it to African Americans for a certain amount of time. You can think of, you can hypothetically think of justifications that God would do that. Maybe it was to try and minimize the amount of persecution that the saints were um, undergoing. Maybe it's to. you can think of any number of reasons. The fact that you can even hypothetically think of a reason means that it's not an issue because the only way that it would be an issue is if there was no possible way that God could possibly let that happen. Um, that's the only way that the priesthood could be void. But if you believe that there was even a possible reason that God did it, there is therefore every reason in the world to think that that was the reason that it was done and not that the entire church is wrong because of it. And so that's the first thing I'd say about um, blacks in the priesthood, but I would also add, add to that. um, I'd add to that polygamy as well. Um, And, and basically any issue you have with church history, is there a, now I'm talking about specifically when it comes from a prophet. So when it comes from a prophet of the church, is there a reason, hypothetically, that it could have been done this way? If yes, then it's not an issue. On top of that, if it doesn't come from a prophet, or like even if it does come from a prophet, if it's just words and it's not actions, or if it's just word words and it's not policy, or it was never taught as doctrine, then that is just a prophet um, speaking their opinion and being wrong. So that's the other thing. I don't think that one's priesthood um, gets sacrificed when they teach the wrong opinion. Like if someone says something that's wrong, I don't think that just because they said something wrong, they would lose their priesthood. Otherwise I would have lost my priesthood like a hundred thousand times by this point, because I have made a lot of mistakes. I have said a lot of things that I regret now. um, But point being that i don't think that a prophet loses his prophetic calling because he opines on something and then happens to be wrong so that's the other thing when it comes to brigham young justifying the priesthood ban one could say but brigham young's justifications are clearly racist and i could i could say okay assuming he's quoted correctly because i'm not sure that he is but assuming he's quoted correctly in what he says then i would say um that was a prophet opining on something that he was wrong about he was given the revelation to um, restrict the priesthood for black people hypothetically let's say it was revelation he was he was given the um, revelation to restrict people black people in the priesthood and then he did it and then he tried to justify why that was and his justification ended up being racist because that's the time that he lived in even if all of those things are true that doesn't That doesn't discount the truth of the church. It doesn't discount the truth of the priesthood. It doesn't discount the prophetic calling of all the prophets. And I would ask why we can't be more like the Catholics in this, because the Catholics, they have been through way more, way more than any of you guys have. I'm sorry, but like Catholics somehow find a way to still believe in the church and still believe in Christ, despite all of that. And so I think we could take a, (laughs) take a, take a leaf out of the Catholics book and main and and exercise and maintain our faith, even in the, even in the face of things that, that seem like issues Um, because I would, of course, I would argue that most of them aren't issues, but when it comes to questions, there is always a faithful answer for the question. There is always a faithful answer for the question. People say, you know, put it on the shelf and then, you know, X members will say, oh, well, my shelf just broke. And it's like, that's because you're not doing, putting in the effort to actually study out each of the things on the shelf and figure it out. If you just leave it on the shelf and then just put everything on the shelf and don't think about it and don't exercise any amount of faith in learning about it, then of course the shelf's going to break. Right. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. But if you put something on the shelf and then go away, ponder on it, pray about it, actually pray about it, study your scriptures daily, so on and so forth, an answer is going to come. For me, I was really, I was struggling with polygamy. Not, and this, this is the sort of thing that's going to get me canceled, but I was struggling (laughs) with it, not because, um, not because of it existing, but because it was taken away. I was like, well, if polygamy was preached as doctrine for so long and it was such a, you know, it was seen as such a holy way of living, why was it suddenly taken away from the church? That was, uh, and I was really struggling with this.
0: Hmm.
1: And I'm not going to tell you what answer I came to, but because that's something that you have to study out in your own mind um, and the spirit can testify of it to yourself, whatever the answer may be. But what I will say is that, reading doctrines and covenants, which is what I've just, I've just finished doctrines and covenants, um, reading doctrines and covenants really helped me understand the role that polygamy played in the church and reading saints has also helped me understand the role that polygamy played in the church. So, um, that was, and look, it was on my shelf for months and months and, uh, and I didn't have an answer for it, but I do now. Hmm.
0: You did your due diligence.
1: That's right. And, and, you and you figured
0: um, it out.
1: Correct. And so that's what I would say when it comes to any issue in the church, exercising faith is always extremely important. Um, saying, I don't know now, but I will. Um, I don't know now, but I'll go find out. Um, that's, that's what I would recommend. Um, and when it comes to specifically hard issues that really shake your faith, I would encourage you to remember the foundations that your faith is built upon. Because I don't suppose that anyone who is listening to this podcast who's a member of the church, uh, I I don't suppose that any of their faith is built on the foundation of Joseph Smith never had multiple wives. I don't suppose for a moment that they joined the church only because they thought Joseph Smith didn't have any multiple wives. I would guarantee to you that it is built upon a faith of Christ on uh, the witnesses of the Holy Ghost. of a testimony of the Book of Mormon, um, of any of those things. And I'll tell you right now that even if, and I I know for a fact that most of the things that, um, that ex-members and, um, and um, anti-church people, that most of the things that they will say uh, are wrong. Almost, almost all of them are either a hundred percent false or they are twisted in order to um, push a certain narrative or, or or make money or they've come from someone who's trying to profit off of um, people leaving the church um, and i won't say any names because i'm trying to avoid contention but we all know who they are
0: i'm with you i think that as we approach our questions with faith and believing that there are answers and and sticking with it i've spoken to Couple of people about how we can deal with um, attacks on our faith on this podcast, and that's one of the big things is that we have to be willing to put in the work and to be patient. Mm-hmm. Our heavenly Father expects us if we're going to choose Him. He He expects us to to work our muscles a bit.
1: Correct. And, he,
0: and it's not he expects going us to, to, to
1: sacrifice. Be,
0: yeah, it's not going to be easy, as uh, Elder Holland talked about in this October twenty 21- one 2021 Mm. conference he talked about if we are going to live as christ lived we are going to pass by way of the cross and a crown
1: of absolutely i would say to all your listeners as well that you literally cannot like this is the law of sacrifice and this is not god telling you this this well he has told you this but this, it's not because he wills it this way. This is the way the universe operates. If you sacrifice something now, you can get something in the future. If you do not sacrifice something now, you will get nothing in the future. That is a mm-hmm. universal law. And so it happens at baptism. It happens at with all of your covenants. It happens when you work and make money. It happens when you put in study hours in order to get a degree. Um, and so way, sacrifice is way more important than you may even realize because God himself sacrificed in order to be what he is today. Christ sacrificed to get us to be like both of them. And so sacrifice is very important. And so keep that in mind.
0: Yeah. So you've, you've kind of drawn this picture of what your life was like prior to becoming a member of the church of Jesus Christ. But I'd like you to dive into that a little bit more. Ultimately, in what specific ways has the testimony of Jesus Christ and involvement with the Church of Jesus Christ blessed your life?
1: Well, I'll just quickly say this, because this will outline everything, which is that in the same way that uh, my life outside of the church was characterized by darkness and suffering, um, my life inside the church has been characterized by light, truth, um, and peace in a way that I have never felt ever in my life if we're going to get into specifics, um, I look, we all struggle at times with being emotional or anxious or whatever it is. I have not struggled with long-term depression since I joined the church. Actually, since I made the decision to be baptized, I haven't, because I used to go weeks at a time being depressed. Um, And I would go, I would go months at a time being depressed. And so I have not had an experience like that since deciding to join the church. Um, Part of that is to do with God. Part of it's to do with the Holy Ghost. Part of it's to do with aligning myself with truth instead of aligning myself with lies. Part of it is that I've forsaken sins that I was partaking in before I joined the church. That's one thing. Um, The other thing is that I have my wife, which was a direct blessing. She was a direct blessing to my life because of joining the church, because I fasted and prayed. Um, When I made that testimony video, I don't think I was married yet. I fasted and prayed to meet my eternal companion. Um, And we all know that it takes some sacrifice to receive any blessings. And so uh, maybe it was, maybe everyone else can see it coming, but I couldn't. And that was that I met my eternal companion after my baptism, like literally in the place where you get food in the hall, <laughs> um, in the cultural hall, yeah. we're having food. And I met her there. Um, and the next day after my confirmation, I asked her um, out on a kind of friend date thing. And then the rest is history. But I literally met my, my wife because of my baptism. So directly because of me joining the church, I met her and I wouldn't have met her otherwise. So that's a direct blessing as well. That's why when people say, um, when people say um, like on Twitter, they or, or just in my personal life, they complain about not being able to find any, find any good righteous Christian women that they, that they can marry. Um, I always just say, become a member of the church of Jesus Christ. It worked <laughs> for me. It can work for you. Um, and just my family. Um, my, my wife's family has been a great blessing to my life. And also my, my, my friends on Twitter, my friends on YouTube, um, the people who I've met through doing what I do online, um, I've met some amazing people, um, you know, like, like Leland, like Adam Eberts, like, um, uh, King Benjamin and Redeemed Saint. And, um, I have so many, Ezra Cole, just so many friends that I've made on, on Twitter and YouTube that, um, mean the world to me as well. And I wouldn't have those friends if I didn't join the church. So yeah, that's what I'd say. It, it, it's it been a, there's been a great many things that I've seen from the church that have blessed my life.
0: Hmm. Well, as I often say, one of the the great gifts of being a member of the church is to be able to mingle with the saints and it Correct. is not always easy. Obviously Zion is kind of a messy place sometimes and we have our differences of opinion and that can sometimes be challenging, but yeah, some of the best people that I I have been blessed to meet have been members of this church. And it's because mm. they are seeking to be saints. And and what is a saint? It's a sinner that keeps on trying. Yes. And, and good people who are who serve and love in extraordinary ways. So I love that you you bring that up. Well, this has been so fun, Peregrine, and I think that you've been very unique in my my podcast lineup because we've never had again a, a hardcore atheist on
1: Latter Day I but said,
0: also, not very
1: many of us. Yeah, there's yeah, not very many of us.
0: But the the ideas that you shared, the experiences that you've had, I think have been really powerful. So I so appreciate your willingness to to be with us tonight. No worries. Or, This morning in Perth, Australia. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, before I let you go, I'm curious, why are you still rowing and choosing faith in Christ and his restored church?
1: I stay in the church because it is true. I keep exercising faith because there is no, there's no choice in this life. Um, You're always going to be putting faith in something. And so I choose to put my faith in something which has led me in the right direction and will continue to do so. I choose the church because I believe in it, because I believe that it is um, honestly the most true set of ideas and the most true thing that has ever been on the earth. I truly believe that Christ is truth, that God is truth, that they are aligned with truth perfectly. I believe that we can be like that too. And I believe that the church, that the church is the collection of teachings and the priesthood, which can lead us there. Um, I also believe that the God and Jesus Christ speaks through the scriptures and teachings of this church in a way that they don't to any other church. The other thing is, my life would be so much worse if I didn't. So much worse if I didn't. Um, and I know that because of my personal experiences.
0: Beautiful. Thank well, you. thanks again, Peregrine. You keep keep up the good work on YouTube.
1: Thank you. And <laughs> feel free everyone to feel free everyone to come check me out. I stream um, Thursdays, eight p.m. Eastern time, basically weekly. Um, and I answer questions and I talk to the chat and I do these little talks or sermons or whatever you'd call them.
0: <laughs> it's and, loads of fun. Uh, I, I joined last week. So
1: <laughs> it is, it is. And we react to videos as well. Sometimes we watch videos and we laugh at them together because they're bad. Cause we watch x videos or ant videos and we laugh at them. So feel free to come so along it's and way have more fun. Exciting than
0: my podcast is what you're saying.
1: <laughs> it's just as exciting, actually, just as exciting.
0: Well, thanks again, Peregrine.
1: No worries.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at Church of Jesus Christ underscore SR underscore podcast and on Facebook at Church of Jesus Christ. SR podcast. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, that would help us spread the word about still rowing. Thanks again for listening.